Well, my thanks to our music team and their faithful leadership as we sing to our God in worship. I'd ask that you would come with me to our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 25. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, and let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for they have been from of old. Remember not my transgressions, the sins of my youth. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He lades the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Would you join with me in prayer? O Lord, our God, we ask that you would help us to be among those who would keep your covenant with us. We thank you for the fact that we live under a new covenant, a covenant purchased with the blood of Christ. And Lord, we confess that we as all mankind have always been our covenant breakers. We have failed. We have sinned against you, O Lord, and we confess our sin before you. And we ask that you would reconcile us to yourself. But Lord, what grace it is to know that we in the new covenant depend not upon our own faithfulness, depend not upon our own holiness, depend not upon our own sacrifices, but, O Lord, we depend upon the sacrifice made by Christ at Calvary. And His holiness and His righteousness is our hope. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters that I have to worship with and that we can count one another as family, that we can love one another and care for one another, that we can support one another, that we can grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. We can bear one another's burdens. And that we can say, as Elk Point Baptist Church, we try to do this well. And Lord, I pray that if there are those who are bearing burdens by themselves, that they would not. That they would first and foremost cast all of their cares upon you, but that they would also avail themselves of this body of believers that you have placed them in, that we might bear their burdens together. And Lord, we thank you that you have 
so wisely provided for us in this way. Lord, I think of those in our congregation who are not able to be with us here this morning. Perhaps they are ill or away, and we ask that you would be with them, keeping them safe, and in your will that you would bring them back together soon. We think particularly of little Tabitha, who is suffering from an ear infection, and she's not able to be with us here today. We just pray that you would help her to heal quickly and that there would be no side effects from the medications that she has to undergo to clear this up. And Lord, speaking of children, we thank you for the children of Elk Point Baptist Church, that we have the opportunity to see them come and bring memory verses, and that we are able to man programs for them, whether it's children's church or Sunday school or kids rock or whatever it might be, Lord, we thank you that we are able to care for these little ones, for they are such a gift to us. And we pray that we would treat them as such, and that we as a church, a gathered body, would, as one, care for each of these children as if they were our own. And Lord, for those among us who have children who are lost, children who do not know you, children who have rejected you, children who are wandering from you, Lord, we ask that you would bring sweet comfort to their parents and their families. But we ask for the sweetest of comforts, that their families would be able to see these lost children come to see and know and worship you as Lord and Savior. God, we do pray for our upcoming annual meeting. We thank you that we can gather together an extra time in this coming week to, to worship you and praise you even as we handle the, the affairs of your church. And we pray that you would give us wisdom to do so and that you would gather our members, that you would give decent weather for our meeting and that we might be able to honor you in what we say and what we do there. We do also thank you, Lord, for our Filipino connection, for Pastors June and Roly and their families and their churches that remind us that we are a part of something far greater than just one church in small-town Alberta. But the, we are one local church, one local body who is joined and connected to the greater body of believers across the entire world and across all ages. We pray that we would continue being able to encouraging to encourage our brothers and sisters in the Philippines, particularly June and Roly and theirs, but that they would also continue to strengthen and encourage us. God, I thank you that June has this upcoming TLI, Training Leaders International, um, event on February 5th, and we ask that as he participates in the training of local leaders for pastors in the Philippines, we pray that he would be well-equipped to do so, well-prepared to do so, and that you would work through the teaching that he is going to do. Finally, Lord, as we come to a time of the preaching of your word, I ask that you would take and apply these words of yours to our hearts that you would take and use the preparations that have been made and use them for your glory, that you would speak clearly and that we would leave here 
affected by your work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we come to the preaching of God's Word. If you want to get your fingers in there, we will be on Genesis chapter 9 this week. And if you are going to be using one of the Pew Bibles, that'll be on page 6. We're in danger of actually needing page numbers for our Pew Bibles here. I do want to remind that our children's church folk are free to go. And now we can enjoy the preaching of God's Word. So most of us can likely remember at some early age in a very solemn moment with some of our friends, maybe with a cousin, maybe with a brother or sister, that sacred childhood oath that was made where you link pinkies with one another and you make that sacred childhood promise the pinky swear or the pinky promise. And even now, as I think back to my childhood and making promises to my friends or whatever it might be, that was like, that was top tier. That was the highest level. It was a promise beyond promises. I want to make sure that we're going to pinky swear on it. And there is no breaking a pinky swear. And there's something to this kind of agreement. The adult version is the, the handshake promise, and many of us wish for the days where we could depend on, upon a handshake promise. But even a promise made over a handshake in a business meeting technically is legally binding, provided that you can prove it happened. And that's why we now have written contracts, because it's hard to prove a handshake promise. But there's something to the solemnness of a vow that is sealed and committed to by an action. More specifically, an action designed to guarantee the faithfulness of both parties to the deal. If we shake on it, both of us should be able to depend on the faithfulness of the other to whatever deal it is that we've made. And promises like these have been a part of human history since near the beginning. And it is to such a vow, and the words that we're going to be using is covenant, that we come today. So before we get too far, again, I had you get your finger in chapter 9 of our book of Genesis. And I'm actually going to scan up a little bit, and I'm going to start reading in chapter 8, verse 21. And we'll read down to verse 17. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that being the aroma of the offering that Noah had given, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven. 
upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is to be seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. So this morning's message, and you probably could hear it in the passage, it kind of comes into two parts. You have part one, which is God's blessing. It's found in kind of the closing verses of chapter 8 into verse 7, mostly verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9. And part 2, the covenant that God makes with Noah is verses 8 through 17. Part 1 is really kind of the close of one chapter of humanity while starting of another. It's the pre-flood chapters versus the post-flood chapter that is happening here. We spoke last week about how it was Noah's first impulse coming off the ark to worship the Lord. He built an altar immediately and made sacrifices to God in gratitude for his protection and his provision. And that displayed the Godward orientation, the faith that Noah had in God. And in those final verses of chapter 8, and the reason why this message is 9, 1 to 17, but we include that chapter 8 piece is the chapter 8 piece is kind of a narration of the thoughts of God that set up 1 to 17. So Noah makes the sacrifice and the pleasing aroma comes before the Lord. And then the Lord said in his heart, so this is the internal monologue of God that we're getting a, a view into here that he would never again curse the ground as he had in the flood. Then in chapter 9, is kind of the outflow of what God has said in his heart, what God has said kind of to himself. And God gives Noah this incredible blessing in verses 1 to 7. It's 
remarkably similar to another blessing that we've already been over, the blessing given to Adam and Eve in 128. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's interesting that that command to Adam to subdue the earth is omitted here. And it shouldn't surprise us that as kind of the capstone of this whole rehashing of the creation narrative that we had in the flood, God decreating and recreating the earth through the flood, Noah is now essentially affirmed as another type of Adam. He is the beginning of mankind all over again. And that's even foreshadowed when Noah is named and his father says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There's a hope that drills down specifically to Noah and Noah's offspring. Ultimately, the salvation that God had promised all the way back in Genesis in the beginning of Genesis, to Adam and Eve, it now, for sure, comes from Noah because there's no one else for it to come from. So now Noah and his family are blessed with this almost the same blessing as Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we start again from square one. And then we have those changes. Fill the earth and subdue it. No longer is he told to subdue it. Instead, he is told that the fear and dread of him will be upon every beast of the earth. We'll get to that in a minute. When Adam and Eve were given this blessing, they were in the garden. And in the garden, there was no death. And God said to them, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. So as much as in my mind I shudder at the idea of becoming a vegetarian, that was God's original design that Adam and Eve would have every tree with seed and its fruit and they shall have them for food. But now post-fall, post-flood, God gives to man not only every plant but every animal as well. And there's discussion as to whether up until Noah, everyone stayed vegetarian, or if this was God's kind of opening up and saying, okay, you've already started eating the animals, but now you have, you have my blessing, but that'll be outside of the bounds of what we're going to get into today. But God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. From the curse that fell upon Adam and Eve onwards, death became a part of the human experience. Then Adam and Eve, as they are expelled from the garden, the killing of animals becomes part of their experience as clothes for them. Then in Cain's murder, murder of Abel, murder also finds its place within human society. Death, the death that God promised Adam if he were to disobey and eat that tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, Death starts doing its work and proliferating in the human experience, gradually working its way out. And all of that death culminates in the greatest death that man had known, the flood. 
the death of all mankind and every creeping thing on the earth. And we have all of this death surrounding Noah and the aftermath of the flood just finally receding. And God now comes and says in the midst of all of this death, he affirms the importance and the value of life. From the way it's written here, it seems that mankind up to this point may have had kind of an amicable relationship with the animals of the world up until this point, which I think would have been very con convenient spending an entire year in a boat with them. I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend a year in a boat with a lion that is going to want to eat me, two lions and leopards and whatever other creature that would have been carnivorous. But anyways, God now says that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. The ability of man to subdue the created order, remembering that that was omitted from this promise given to Noah compared to the Adam promise, but the ability of man to subdue this created order is now bridled in some sense. There's an aversion, there's a terror of man that is common to the animal kingdom. So this doesn't totally flip the script on us. God, man is still at the apex of God's creative work. That pre-fall command to take dominion over the earth, including the animals, still applies. But just as in everything else that came from that pre-fall command, our ability to accomplish those commands has changed. But into Noah's hands they are still delivered. He might not be able to subdue and bring the animals by to name them as Adam did. But into his hand they are still delivered. Noah is still at the top of God's created order. Man is still at the top. Then we move into this discussion that God has in the midst of blessing Noah. So this is still a part of the blessing, the taking of life, the consumption of these animals, and the death that is now a part of the human experience, the killing of these animals. There's some limits that are placed upon it. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, and for your life blood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you'll notice that we kind of have a scaled back version of what we're going to see later in the covenants that God makes with people. Because we know that for the Israelites and for people who still follow modern-day Judaism, there are animals that are off-limits. You can't have this animal. You can't have that animal. This one is forbidden to you. But in this passage, that has not happened yet. So God is progressively revealing what he is wanting from his people and progressively, through that revelation, revealing to his people that they can't attain to his standards. But that is a 
a future message. But what we get really clearly here in this passage is the importance of blood. And Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we've said this before, is this foundational text. That was the whole idea of wanting to do this series on Genesis 1 to 11, is that just about everything we get elsewhere in the Bible, you can trace some form of it back to 1 to 11. Kind of embryonic forms of theological truths. And this general commandment that God gives regarding blood is that people may not consume the blood of animals. Which might seem in the moment to be kind of an arbitrary rule and law. And if you look here, Noah's not given any kind of explanation for that. Don't eat the blood of animals. Noah's supposed to go, okay. Just like when a parent tells a child to do something, yes, there is a time and a place for explanations, but ultimately, I tell a child to do something, and their answer should be, okay. And being a good parent, eventually, I often will explain myself. And God eventually does explain this rule, but it is not in Noah's day. If you were to flip over to Leviticus 17, you don't need to go there. I'll read it for you. But if you want to, Leviticus 17, starting in verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and will cut him off from among his people. In verse 11 here. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So Noah is simply told, don't eat the blood. Why? Tell your offspring later. But it is the blood which God has set aside, the blood of these animals that God has set aside and in a way made it holy, set it apart for a specific purpose. The shed blood of these animals would come to represent atonement before God, being made right before God. And of course, as we hear that, as Moses' audience writing about Noah is hearing that, they go, oh, that's looking forward to the sacrifices. This kind of like a, a step one of the sacrifices we're doing now. And then we, now thousands of years later, go, oh, that's pointing to the sacrifices, and the sacrifices are pointing to Jesus. points to the blood of Christ, which would be poured out for his people. That's made abundantly clear in Hebrews 9, which says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, speaking of the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So you're going to see 
and I hope that you do. This is one of my great hopes in this whole sermon series, that as you now read the scriptures, not just Genesis, that you'll be able to go, I remember a bit of that from Genesis 1 to 11. And there's this magnification, this expansion, where it starts here and just kind of works its way out and gets bigger and bigger. And also within this, we are reminded how the blood of animals is clearly inferior to the blood of man. For the descendants of Noah were not to eat the blood of an animal, but for their lifeblood, God would himself require a reckoning. So an animal, it's like, okay, just don't eat that blood. But if you spill the blood of a man, if an animal spills the blood of a man, if a man spills the blood of a man, God is going to require a reckoning for that blood. That blood is important. And this calls back to the conversation with Cain and Abel, where God says to Cain, your brother's blood is calling out to me from the ground. The blood of one man became the blood that washes us clean from our sin, that inaugurated the new covenant for all who would call upon his name in faith. And all of this, the reason for this whole conversation about blood, and particularly the blood of man, it all ties back to man is created in the image of God. Why is the life of a man different than the life of an animal? Why is man greater than beast? For there is no other creation on earth that carries in it the unique image of God as man was created to do. And our world doesn't overly well understand this. A couple of weeks ago was the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, where churches throughout the world have acknowledged that one of the greatest and most horrific things that mankind has gotten into in these days is the wanton destruction of life through abortion. Why is that different than, okay, i got to put my dog down? Because one is a person, one's a dog. A news article that I've been following lately has to do with a fire department out in Ontario. Fire department out in Ontario, they get called because this elderly couple, their dog chased a bird out onto the river and fell through the ice. And their dog's stuck in, stuck in the ice, and they call the fire department, can you come save my dog? And they're told on the phone, be like, we can't go out on the ice. We can't send a person out on the ice to save your dog. And the fire department had to go because they were called. But they went and just stood there with the person on the side, and they're like, go save my dog. They're like, we can't. We don't have the training to go out on a moving body of water, and I'm not going to risk a person to save your dog. And now there's this petition going on, fire the fire chief, because they wouldn't save this dog. Well, I, I'm sorry. And they tried. They, they tried to throw ropes and stuff and tried to, to hook the dog, but ultimately... One's a dog and one's a person, and I get it. For some of us, our dogs become like part of the family. People call dogs their fur babies. And 
But if it comes down to my kid or my dog, it is not going to be a question. If my dog turns on my kid and bites my kid, I am not going, I might give my kid heck for doing whatever it was to provoke the dog, but it's not going to be the kid that gets the brunt of that battle. The blood of man is far greater than the blood of a beast. For the blood of man is the blood of one who is made in the image of God. And here again we can see that in the hierarchy of God's creative work, mankind is of not just at the top of the food chain. Mankind is not just simply the apex animal that at some point might be replaced by a more evolved creature. Mankind is at the top of the pile, but he is in an entire different category. It's not just first among the animals, it is first and then the animals. We're bringing it back in. Part one of our passage today, this blessing given to Noah, is wrapped up nicely in verse 7. So we kind of have what we call an inclusio, the the two things kind of repeated and sandwiching a whole thought in it's wrapped up in verse 7 by this repeat of that Adamic-sounding blessing. That man is given animals as food, that man is prohibited from eating blood, and that they are even more prohibited from shedding the blood of their fellow man. All of that looks to the propagation of godly families, sharing forth the gospel that is found in the display of God's image. And the blessing of God that Noah receives is that he is told, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. One of the greatest blessings that we can have is the blessing of children. But it is not just when we hear, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly in the earth and multiply in it. This does not exclude people who don't have kids. This does not exclude people who can't have kids. This does not exclude people who choose not to have kids for one reason or another. Yes, some point Christians are going to have kids otherwise there's not going to be a whole lot of Christians left but the force of this is that we carry forth the imago Dei the image of God into creation and we as a church family and this is something that we've recognized in the past that we now also have a family other than our blood family. I now have kids other than my blood kids. You now have kids other than your blood kids. You now have grandparents other than your blood grandparents. I have people in this church that I love and respect as much as and more than blood family because this family here is just as much a part of my family as any of my blood. And when we come to this be fruitful and multiply, yes, there is a blood family connection of have a whole bunch of great and godly babies. And teach them about Jesus. But go forth and multiply. Teach all of this church family, extended church family, about Jesus. Go and share the gospel with them. 
But this is the blessing that Noah is given. Increase and be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, in Noah's context, it's really important that they be fruitful and multiply because eight people are only going to last so long. So it's very important that they physically multiply. And then in part two, verses kind of eight to 17, we come to a scene where God makes a promise to man that is more than just a promise. The word that this passage uses is the word covenant. And in modern language, covenant has kind of just become interchangeable synonym with promise. Maybe it's just kind of like a promise with a little bit extra kind of gravitas behind it. It's like, okay, this is a special promise. Well, it is a special promise, but it's much more than that. And if you read through Scripture, the covenants that God has made with man are one of the most, and like the the specific covenants that God has made between himself and man become one of the most important threads where I can go to the very last pages of Scripture and kind of tug on the string, and that string will tie all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the covenants become one of those threads that tie this from 66 separate books and letters and prophecies and historical accounts into one cohesive story. And the covenants are a huge part of building that story. The first covenant, it's not necessarily called a covenant in the passages between God and Adam when Adam is told, the Lord commands Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And in that, God promises that if Adam should abstain from eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he should live forever in the garden. He should live forever provided for in God's abundance, eating of whatever fruit of whatever tree he should please except for that one fruit if you remain faithful this is what you shall receive but if you break this covenant this is the penalty to fail in that command would incur the penalty of death and just as is the pattern of man we break the terms of our covenant with God just as Adam did and then God in his Mercy provides for our salvation even despite our faithlessness. For when Adam and Eve then sin against God, they did incur the judgment that God warned them about. Death started doing its work, but God also promised that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that's the first covenant. And then the next covenant that we see made between God and man is what we're at today. He makes a covenant with Noah that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And we need to see this covenant. Sometimes if we were to look up biblical covenants, that's where the blog post or the Google article would pick up. There's this covenant. I will make a covenant with you. But if we don't get the blessing that comes in the beginning, in the first 
seven verses of Genesis 9, then we miss that this covenant kind of goes beyond, I'm just not going to kill everything again. But we'll get there. At first glance, this might kind of seem like an underwhelming promise on God's part. God has just wiped every land-dwelling creature and man and woman from the earth. And he promises, I won't do it again. If I hear screaming coming from my basement and one of my kids has just hit one of my other kids with a toy and they say, I promise I won't do it again. Okay. (laughs) Shouldn't have done it in the first place. But in this situation, God was totally justified in what he did in the flood and it is by his grace that he promises he won't do it again. And if we scan up to that, and this is why I included that little thought process in Genesis 8. The Lord said in his heart, so this is his own thoughts within himself that we're allowed to, it's kind of like a little peer view into the mind of God here, which is incredible. But he says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. But listen to that one sentence again. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That doesn't make sense at first. I'm never going to curse the ground because of man. For man is evil from his youth. But if we take the whole of Noah's story and the whole of this promise that God is giving, God is literally saying that he is well aware that the same grief that he endured, he is prepared to endure again for the entire rest of creation. The beginning of Noah's story. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. These same people, this same creation would continue to spit in God's face for as long as they are going to exist. The same creation that was designed to glorify God and to bear his image, ruling as his vice regents in all of creation, instead they would deny him and profane the very name that they were designed to praise. And yet God, in his patience, makes this promise that if you just read it on its own, it seems so underwhelming. Well, I'm not going to flood the earth again. But when you pull that out, when you zoom that out, I'm not going to flood the earth again knowing that you are going to be spitting on me and you are going to be profaning me and you are going to be necessitating the death of my son some thousands of years later. I'm still not going to wipe you off the earth again. Apostle Peter takes up that line in 2 Peter 3. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This covenant that God makes with Noah is not just a I'm not going to do it again. It is a covenant of God's patience with his creation, of his love for his people. God has blessed Noah and his progeny to be fruitful and to multiply, knowing that as Noah goes forth from this promise, they're only going to multiply in wickedness. Go forth and be fruitful and multiply and make more of these people that are going to profane my holy name. And that one day, the righteous would be as rare on the earth as they were in the days of Noah. But God, for the sake of his people, would endure the insult and the injury and the wickedness of mankind for the sake of his people. And God would endure even the death of his only begotten son to rescue these self-same people. And every one of whom had failed to meet the standards of pleasing God. And as a symbol of this covenant, God would hang his bow in the clouds. When we see the rainbow in the clouds... My kids now will be like, oh, the rainbow means God's not going to flood the earth again. Absolutely. And that is great news. I think we should be excited when we see the rainbow. I'm not going to be killed by a global flood. Awesome. <laughs> but if that's all we hear, we're missing the most of it like looking at just the tip of an iceberg the bulk of it if you get into this passage when we see the rainbow we see the incredible patience with God with his whole creation that one day God will return and wipe this earth clean but for now God is holding off enduring the wickedness and the evilness of even our own hearts not just them our own hearts God is enduring our own sin against him displaying his incredible patience with us and his love for us. So when we see that rainbow, it is not just, I'm not going to be killed by a flood. It is God is being patient, even with me. God is being patient with 
that one that has walked away from him that he is even now calling to return and to confess and be reconciled to him. God is being patient. And I love Peter's piece there that his patience with God, God is an eternal God. God has all of the time in the world because God creates all of the time in the world. He's not confined. So he is being patient. But don't forget that every second that God is patient, God is being grieved by his own creation, being grieved to his heart by the sins of the one who were created to worship him. Even being grieved by his own people who claim to worship him and then go and do their own thing. And yet God is patient with us. Most biblical covenants come with a sign that's intended to reaffirm that covenant that God has made with his people. In this covenant, to Noah, he gives the rainbow. In his covenant with Abraham, he gave the sign of circumcision. To Moses, he gave the Sabbath. And in the new covenant, we're actually given two signs. We have the Lord's Supper, where we have this sign and symbol of this new covenant in the blood of Christ, as well as the sign of baptism, which is a sign of the fact that we have died with Christ and been raised back to life with him. God would have there be no doubt that he keeps his promises, and he wants to show that. It's like that unbreakable pinky promise of our youth. If I am going to keep this promise, I'm willing to even pinky swear on it. God has made a promise and he has given us an enduring sign that he is going to keep his promises. And God makes a covenant with Noah to endure the wickedness of his own creation for the sake of his people. And this is not something I've prepared, but even as I'm thinking about this and God's patience with his people and the, the rainbow that he hangs in the clouds becoming a sign for Noah of God's patience with his people and that God would not again destroy the world for its wickedness. What has mankind then taken the rainbow to be today? I mean, how much more clearly can you see demonstrated that God would use the rainbow as his promise of his patience with his people that he would never destroy them again even though they're going to sin and spit upon him and God, even in the moment of making that promise, knew that in 2020-something, that that rainbow would then be perverted to use, be used as a sign and symbol of sin. And yet God still chooses to give this promise. God still chooses to promise that he would be patient and faithful with his people. That is mind-blowing. How patient and loving our God is. As we can see from Peter, that patience, eventually, God is going to call all of us to account. And we can either be found in Christ, bearing the covering of his righteousness, 
or we can be found on the wrong side of God's patience. Where God says, now there's going to be a reckoning. Now you are going to be called to account for your sin. Now everything changes. And the earth is going to pass away with fire. And the flood will become a footnote in the face of the judgment that is uncoming. Moses' readers were two covenants removed from this covenant that he makes with Noah. You have this covenant that God makes with Abraham that essentially forms the people of Israel and kind of God sets apart for himself a people. And then you have the covenant that comes with, no with Moses and each one of these covenants doesn't just completely scrap the other ones. They kind of build upon each other as God, like I said, works out this plan of redemption. The blessing that Noah received also became Noah's responsibility and therefore his offspring's responsibility. Are we the offspring of Noah? Just keep that in mind for when we go into conversations downstairs. But this blessing that Noah receives becomes his responsibility and his offspring's responsibility. God would never again destroy the earth until the very end of the world. So I'm not going to wipe you all out. So in the meantime, you have a job to do. God's blessings very rarely are, here, have this nice thing for you to just kind of hold on to. And I love this. Not like the Christmas present. The, some of you will know I have a collection of coffee mugs in my office. And I have my coffee mug collection cups that never get used and are just there because I like them. And then I have my actual use me cups. God doesn't give us collection cups where we can just, oh, I like this cup. I'm going to put that up there. Never use it again. God doesn't just bless Noah, be fruitful and multiply, and then Noah can just go, I'm going to set that up there and just look at it. You know, God gives Noah this blessing, and that blessing is now his responsibility. I have blessed you, be fruitful, multiply, so go, do it. Be fruitful, multiply, make more of you, teach people, bear forth my image and creation, take dominion over all of creation, bear forth and shine out who I am to all of the rest of the world through the way that you are and the way that you act. In the meantime, they're meant to go forth bearing that image, multiplying and being fruitful to the glory of their creator. Today, too, being post-flood, we await the day God says, in, even in his message to Noah, that for as long as the earth exists, I will not flood the earth again. That implies not forever, that there is going to be an end, and that's kind of left undefined again. This is another one of those, I'm going to tell you that one day the earth is going to end, kind of through a backdoor means, but I'm not going to give you the, all the details, but we have the details now. Not daytime hour, 
None of us know that. None of us are going to know that. But we do know that the earth is going to end. And as we have in Second Peter, we know that when the earth ends, that the earth will end when Christ returns, and he will usher in the day of the Lord. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Our job as humans has never changed. Noah, as a representative of Adam, was charged with doing what Adam had been told to do. Adam, be fruitful and multiply and carry forth my image, my glory with you as you go into creation. Adam doesn't do that job. Adam receives the curse. They still have that job. Noah, go forth, be fruitful and multiply, carry forth my glory. And that blessing is given to Noah and his offspring, which means us. The only thing is that for the other covenants that we run through, the covenant with Adam was dependent upon Adam's obedience to God. If you do not eat of this tree, you will be provided for in the garden. Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Carry forth my glory. But God says, I'm not going to flood it again. I'm going to. But then when you get to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant is, if you will worship me, if you will perform your sacrifices, if you will do what I have told you to do, you will please God. But then we come to the new covenant and all of those old covenants gather together to remind us, we can't do it. If you will do this, then you will have my blessing. I will be with you. Then I will be your God and you will be my people. And over and over and over and over again, even God's chosen people prove that they can't do it. But then in the new covenant, our obligation to do what God has commanded us to do in order to receive his blessing, to receive the promise contained in the covenant, is no longer on our own strength. Christ did perfectly what Adam was called to do, what Noah was supposed to do, what every righteous, faithful man and woman throughout all of history have been called to do and failed to do. Christ rightly and totally and perfectly worshipped and glorified God in all things. He was the true image of God. And the new covenant is no longer a new covenant of works where we have to earn God's pleasure, earn our salvation, earn this. But a covenant whereby the blood of the Lamb the only righteous Son of God, we are commended as righteous not because of our own works, but because of the work of Christ. 
but our job still hasn't changed. We are told to do what only Christ can do. Christ has done it. It is Christ's finished work that God looks upon and commends us and justifies us, but our job still hasn't changed. And our righteousness now, our fulfilling the commandment that God has called us to, to bear forth his image in all of creation is done now not out of obligation hoping against hope that I will earn God's salvation but hoping in Christ and because I hope in Christ I know that my salvation is secure in him and because of that I will worship him and I will obey him and I will demonstrate the faith that I have been granted and it is the power that he provides that allows that to happen. For it is God who works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that Christ has spoken to us are spirit and life. So church, this morning... As we go from this place, let us go utterly convinced of this incredible and gracious and loving patience of our God who would endure so incredibly much evil and wickedness that we know grieves him for the sake of his people, for the sake of us if we are found in him. That even today we are living under the benefit and protection of the covenant that God has made with Noah. Knowing that even in the wickedness of our world, God is holding back his wrath and enduring with patience that all of his people might be saved. He is determined in love to wait and to call unto himself a people held together under the covenant of the blood of his Son. And then we are to live lives of holiness and godliness that our lives lived imitating Christ, bearing forth the image of God as we were meant to do in the very beginning. God, we don't deserve your faithfulness. We don't deserve your patience we cannot earn any of these things, and yet you, in your incredible love and grace and mercy, have provided it for us. So, Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted, that we would see in the covenant that you made with Noah both your patience and your love and your grace, but also our responsibility to bear forth your image in all of creation to spread the good news of the gospel far and wide as we can and thus look forward to the day when your son returns. Thus look forward to the day when you call all of your people unto yourself and that we might live with you forever in a world once again, only now permanently and forever cleansed from sin and all unrighteousness and you would rule and reign, and you would be our God, and we would be your people for all eternity. 
This is our hope, O Lord. And we thank you for it. And we thank you that by your covenant, you, and by your word, you explain these things to us and you show it to us. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that our hearts would be fertile ground for the incredible truths of your word. We thank you for these things and pray in Jesus' name.